Why is so much of life unpleasant? In mindfulness meditation, we learn that much of our suffering comes from a narrative we tell ourselves about what we are experiencing, rather than actual sensations we're having. I'm going to consider the idea of income inequality and unhappiness in order to draw an analogy. The following is from the introduction of a paper in Frontiers in Psychology by Zhang Huo Yu and Fei Wang. Yu and Wang write, quote, The relationship between wealth and subjective well-being is a major issue in social science research. Extant studies have found complex relationships between income and happiness. For example, there is evidence that money does not always buy happiness. After material wealth reaches a certain level, its further increase no longer promotes happiness. This conclusion, also called the Easterland Paradox, may originate from individual satisfaction with their lives being rather affected by their spontaneous comparison between themselves and others. According to the social comparison theory, there are two types of social comparisons. Upward comparison, which involves comparing oneself with those doing better, and downward comparison, which involves comparing oneself with those doing worse. Critically, the proclivity of upward comparison is significantly stronger than for the downward comparison. As a result, even if their absolute income increases, individuals would be still more likely to compare themselves to those richer, which may deteriorate their subjective well-being. Consequently, we can expect the income gap between the rich and the poor to be a better predictor of happiness. Indeed, empirical studies have shown a significant association between the income gap, indexed by the Gini coefficient, and happiness. Unquote. The authors point out that people evaluate their satisfaction in terms relative to their community. In absolute terms, everyone in the society might be doing better than they were 10 years earlier, but some are still doing much better than others, and this, this leads to dissatisfaction in those who are behind them. We are a social species, and we struggle when we cannot reach a high perch within the community hierarchy. The key is that the hierarchy is relative. By analogy, I suggest that consciousness is often unpleasant due to the coexistence of irreconcilable contents. We have an internal hierarchy of needs and preferences. Anything we are doing or thinking about implies that we are not doing something else or thinking about something else. As a result, the something else is always a burden upon the something. If it weren't for all the something else's, the something wouldn't be half bad. I ended the previous episode with this question. What if the line dividing consciousness from non-consciousness is vanishingly thin? In that episode, I discussed the idea of access consciousness. I wondered what consciousness without access would be like. If access consciousness includes attention to the things we perceive, working memory, and otherwise being able to identify and think about what we experience, then what is left in the absence of access consciousness? Well, something is left, at least that is the premise, and I can't avoid taking the position of affirming it. How can we approach this problem? Enter Thomas Metzinger in a recent paper called Minimal Phenomenal Experience, Meditation, Tonic Alertness, and the Phenomenology of Pure Consciousness. This is the opposite of access consciousness, and it appears to be just what the doctor ordered. Metzinger begins, quote, One central motivation behind the current initiative is to test a fresh alternative to the now classical research strategy of isolating the neural correlate of consciousness. The new idea is to develop a minimal model of conscious experience. In the present context, developing a minimal model of conscious experience is something very benign and modest. For example, given the current state of consciousness science, a minimal model will not yet involve elaborate formal procedures like mathematically delimiting a universality class. Rather, it can be seen as a heuristic strategy of minimalist idealization. 
constructing and investigating a model of conscious experience that includes only the core causal factors giving rise to the target phenomenon, including only causal factors that make a difference to the actual occurrence and the essential phenomenal character itself, developing an idealized model of universal and repeatable features serving to gradually isolate the fundamental explanatorily relevant and structurally stable properties that underlie different forms of conscious experience." Unquote. Here, Thomas Metzinger frames the minimal model of consciousness as a shift away from the paradigm of the neural correlates of consciousness. This might be true in spirit, but really it reads as the pursuit of the neural correlates of minimal consciousness, which still preserves the fundamentals of the original paradigm. Nevertheless, I find the approach exciting and novel. Metzinger goes on, quote, The opposite of a minimal model would be a maximal model, a theory which would capture all the behavior, both repeatable and unrepeatable, of a given system. For complex systems like the conscious human brain, this traditional modeling strategy is an unattainable goal. Many of the fine de details will actually get in the way of scientific explanation and detract from a deeper understanding of the research target. However, if the phenomenon to be explained is a large-scale regularity that is largely independent of micro-scale details and features of individual elements, it can prove helpful to identify the minimal conditions necessary for the explanatory target to occur, later linking them back to the original phenomenon of interest. In the present context, there are two major aspects of the minimal model strategy. The first is to describe the target phenomenon in an uncluttered way abstracting away from everything that is not an essential feature of the core explanandum. If the systems of interest are conscious systems, three questions arise. 1. Whether phenomenality as such has a distinct experiential character. 2. Whether this character ever recurs in isolation. and 3. Whether it can be described in a conceptually precise manner. The second aspect aims at an economical strategy for describing the network of causal factors giving rise to this specific explanandum, given that a precise description succeeds. Here, constructing a minimal model would amount to eliminating superfluous details by extracting only the explanatorily relevant causal structure underlying the experience of phenomenality as such, thereby providing a medium-level functional analysis while still omitting most of the structural details of a fully mechanistic explanation. Both aspects could come together if mathematically stable features of the physical dynamics characterizing the global neural correlate of minimal phenomenal experience in humans could be directly mapped to corresponding abstract patterns within phenomenal dynamics independently of potentially unknowable and fine-grained neuroscientific details, thereby yielding what we are most interested in, a universal and reliably repeatable property instantiated by all forms of subjective experience." Unquote. He goes on, quote, there are five factors that make the concept of minimal phenomenal experience interesting. First, minimal phenomenal experience could refer to the common phenomenological denominator that is always present whenever there is a conscious experience at all, however rich or limited. Second, a concerted attempt to isolate this hypothetical common denominator could lead to interdisciplinary unification in consciousness research by connecting different domains and experimental approaches in a new way. Third, by aiming at a minimal model explanation, we could arrive at an entirely new theoretical model of conscious experience itself, providing us with a fresh perspective and possibly even a new window onto the target. Fourth, the minimal phenomenal experience approach could lead to unification and considerable enrichment within analytical philosophy of mind itself by elevating comparative and transcultural philosophy of mind to a new and more systematic level. 
And finally, reports about pure consciousness experiences are a neglected empirical phenomenon worth studying in its own right." Unquote. Metzinger provides the following account from Walter Terence Stace of a type of mystical experience. Quote, there would be no mental content whatever, but rather a complete emptiness, vacuum, void. One would suppose a priori that consciousness would then entirely lapse and one would fall asleep or become unconscious. But the introvertive mystics, thousands of them all over the world, unanimously assert that they have attained to this complete vacuum of particular mental contents, but that what then happens is quite different from a lapse into unconsciousness. On the contrary, what emerges is a state of pure consciousness, pure in the sense that it is not the consciousness of any empirical content. It has no content except itself. It is the bare unity of the manifold of consciousness from which the manifold itself has been obliterated. This seems analogous to saying that if from a whole or unity of many parts we could subtract all the parts, the empty whole or unity would be left." Unquote. Based upon this and other sources on contemplative practice, Metzinger suggests two phenomenological descriptions. First, he defines wakefulness as the phenomenal character of tonic alertness. Second, he defines low complexity as the complete absence of intentional content, including symbolic mental content, sensory motor, and affective content. Thus, the model of minimal phenomenal experience might describe a waking state of minimal complexity. What is consciousness without content? In my opinion, consciousness without content is non-consciousness by definition. This is not what Walter Terence Stace described, though. In the passage, he described a state of pure consciousness as a unity. He made the claim that the pure consciousness has no content except itself. I'd like to suggest that this means there is, at least in theory, a state of minimal consciousness because there is only one piece of content, the whole experience. Stace was being a bit artful when he said the content is consciousness itself. All conscious contents are consciousness itself. I am not alone in observing that the contents of consciousness are nested in time and space within a larger conscious experience. In my theoretical work, I went further to suggest that the neural correlates of conscious contents are nested within the time and space of the neural correlates of consciousness as a whole. I described this as a landscape. With respect to the neural correlates, I suggested that contents are subsystems of integrated causality existing within a wider system of integrated causality. I propose that the system must be larger in space and longer in duration than any of the subsystems. And I suggested that the subsystems must have a higher level of temporally integrated causality than the system as a whole in order to stand out as distinguishable contents from the point of view of that system. That's the temporally integrated causality landscape as succinctly as I can put it. In fact, that description is sufficient to tell the whole story, if it could be only be understood. Two years, two published papers, and some 20,000 words later, that was all I was trying to say. So now, how shall I conceptualize the idea of pure consciousness, or transcendental oneness? It seems to me that contents are nested within other contents all the time. This is true with bound-together features of perceptual objects. So, for example, if I watch a little bird teetering around outside the window, it is a single organism composed of various parts. It has different colors and visible textures which compose it. It makes a tweeting sound and it pushes seed fragments around with its little feet. Beyond that, the bird is moving about in the three-dimensional space of an overall visual scene. Its parts move along with it relative to the parts of other objects, say trees. 
The trees themselves have parts, which might sway in the wind, moving relative to other backgrounds. Critically, though, the nesting which occurs among contents of consciousness is not limited to the features of perceptual objects. What about thoughts? Appropriate nesting of concepts is occurring all the time as we make sense of who we are, where we are, and what is happening around us. Moreover, we attend to nested concepts when we think or speak about things which need not be happening around us at all. So, for example, if I'm telling a story about a little bird hopping about outside the window, I do not lose track in my own mind or in my own speech of whether it is the bird which is hopping or whether it is the window. The point I am making is that consciousness at any given time tends to be a composition of contents which are nested in arrangement. My best hypothesis as to what is happening in the account above from Walter Terence Stace, assuming that such mystical experiences of oneness do in fact occur, is that consciousness in such instances is composed of a great overarching everything, without the perceptual or conceptual nestedness of parts. Thus there is one, and only one piece of content, the whole. According to the temporally integrated causality landscape, this would be a single large subsystem inside of a single larger system. That subsystem would encompass the whole story of conscious experience for as long as it remained present and alone. This state of being is highly unusual as there are generally many, many subsystems corresponding to many, many individual contents present at any given time. Just as reasonably, there could be a single small subsystem somewhere inside the system. If it were alone, there would only be that one piece of content and nothing else. I do not know if there is a level of focused attention which a practitioner could achieve that would enable such a thing, but maybe there is. During waking states and also during REM sleep, the thalamus and cortex are being stimulated with acetylcholine and other neurotransmitters with the result that neurons are highly active and unsynchronized. They fire spontaneously and quite frequently as a result. According to my framework, this should lead to a higher degrees of causality being spread from neuron to neuron during conscious states. Even if you lie there in complete darkness and silence, conscious contents are omnipresent in the form of thoughts and imaginings and hallucinations of all sorts. If the temporally integrated causality occurring over a network of cortical neurons exceeds the level of the system, then a subsystem will be registered as producing meaningful content as far as the system is concerned. Thus, I conclude that an experience such as Stasis' pure consciousness is an experience in which there is exactly one piece of content in existence from the point of view of the conscious being. It would appear from this analysis that I partially disagree with Metzinger when he characterizes minimal consciousness as lacking intentional content. I suggest that the reason the content is non-intentional is because the subsystem which gives rise to it is large and alone. The system experiences content, but it has nothing to compare it to, no concepts, no perceptions, nothing. So there is an undefinable something which is distinguishable from nothing, but that is all that can be said about it. Perhaps, though, this isn't really non-intentional. It is about something. It is about itself, but nothing further. I think that what we mean by non-consciousness is a lack of subjective content. Thus, minimal consciousness, as described by Metzinger, is minimal because it has only one piece of content. No further reduction is possible in a state of consciousness. Pure consciousness, to my thinking, is pure only in the sense that the content is not evaluable in terms of anything else. It doesn't matter what the single piece of content is. It does not even coexist with a sense of duration. It has no dimension, no contrast. It just is. This is purity in the sense that the quale all by itself is uncontaminated by other qualia. In principle, pure consciousness could be neither pleasant 
nor unpleasant. This brings me back to the discussion I opened with about the unpleasantness of experience. I suggested earlier that consciousness is often unpleasant due to the coexistence of irreconcilable contents. Now that I've established the idea of nested contents within conscious experience, I can consider this a bit further. In mindfulness meditation, you focus most commonly on the sensation of breathing. This repetitive, involuntary behavior of breathing in and out provides a consistent thing to attend to. There's not supposed to be anything particularly important about the breath itself. Rather, the idea is to focus on one simple thing and experience it as closely and clearly as possible. This can enable the practitioner to escape the identity he has with his thoughts and feelings. These inner thoughts are like a constant barrage, which we experience all the time. They carry us away with them. They capture us. And they make us unhappy. If all of this is the source of our discontent, then perhaps achieving a reduction in conscious content is the key to leading a better life. Perhaps simplicity is what we need. When being mindful, we reduce the quantity of content by focusing on the sensations and feelings that are right here in this moment. Consider the act of washing dishes. This task is not exciting or anything, but it doesn't have to be miserable either. The problem is that we think about all the things we would rather be doing. We brood about who didn't rinse this or that dish or who isn't doing their share. We complain to ourselves about our condition in life or about how many dishes still remain to be washed. Before long, we generate a state of despondence. The dishes will never end. Tomorrow there will be more and the day after that. If life is just an endless series of dirty dishes, then what's the point? Maybe I should just use this dirty kitchen knife and end it here and now. All right, I may have gotten carried away. But you see how this constant thinking and commenting and comparing can lead to unhappiness. Sometimes I stop and think about one of my children. I consider how overwhelmed and overjoyed I would be if he had gone missing for hours and had just been found. After so much fretting and terror, here he is. What gratitude I would feel. But then I note that he is here, now. My beloved boy is alive and well, safe and sound, right here in my presence. I should feel that sense of gratitude every single day. But nope. Instead, I'm just pissed about the fucking dishes. And meanwhile, the boy's antics are annoying me.